find it helpful to have that passage uh, opening in front of you. Now, because we've got some younger folk with us this evening, I thought I'd start with a hands-up question. Uh, so, hands-up if you've ever been to school. Okay, hands down. Now, you don't have to answer what it was, but when you were at school, did you ever have a nickname? Yeah, some some people, not all people. A nickname is when sometimes people call you by a, a different name. My nickname at school was Posh Nosh. Uh, I know it sounds a little bit strange, um, but both my parents were Yorkshire-born, Yorkshire-bred, and uh, yeah, I never seemed to have a proper sort of South Leeds accent, uh, so uh, they called me Posh Nosh. Which I always found a little bit ironic, because actually Poshnosh was a restaurant in the centre of Bradford, uh, so it didn't really seem to, to fit very well. But uh, I didn't have it as bad as others, uh, like my friend Big Nick, uh, who was five foot four, uh, or uh, when I was at university there was a guy whose nickname was Fit Chris. Now that wasn't so bad, but everybody else who was called Chris sort of made us wonder, you know, why did we have a different nickname uh, other than Fit Chris? He wasn't particularly healthy. Uh, He was particularly handsome, that's why he had that uh, nickname. But this evening we're going to meet a man who had a nickname, or certainly has a nickname through history, Thomas. And his nickname down through history has been Doubting Thomas. In fact, it's even in the dictionary. A Doubting Thomas is a person who is sceptical and refuses to believe something without proof. But is that fair to Thomas? It's normally taken as a negative term, isn't it, being a Doubting Thomas? Is it wrong to be sceptical? Is it wrong to want proof? And it's an important question, isn't it? Because many of our conversations that we have about Christianity revolve around the idea of proof. Bertrand Russell famously said that if he ever met God on Judgment Day, his answer would be simply, not enough evidence. And it's probably one of the number one reasons that people give uh, for saying why they don't believe. So is it wrong uh, to want evidence? Well, this evening we're going to look at a man who did. That's not all that we're going to see this evening, though. The resurrection, as we've seen, has implications for all sorts of things, uh, both into our lives and history itself. So this evening we're going to see three things that the resurrection did, including what it did uh, to our doubting Thomas. Well, the first one is the resurrection creates the church. Let me read you those verses again. Uh, So from verses 19 uh, to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there's a lot of confusion that surrounds these events. Because, well, it sort of seems, doesn't it, that John has got Pentecost coming a little bit early, doesn't it? When you compare it with Luke's uh, account. Uh, Some have said that this is John's Pentecost, if you like. But it is too early, and it seems to be a very different thing that's happening. There are no uh, tongues of fire or any of the sort of miraculous signs that go with Pentecost. There's no sort of bold witness afterwards, because actually later in our passage, we're going to find them in a locked room again. So we're jumping the gun if we make this sort of John's telling of Pentecost. Uh, After all, the first resurrection appearance uh, is to uh, uh, his disciples as a whole, isn't it? Not uh, um, 
after all, this is just his first appearance, isn't he? He hasn't done anything yet. Now, Jesus here, though, prefigures Pentecost. That's what's happening here. He gives us a bit of a sneak preview uh, of Pentecost. If you think about it, in Jesus' ministry, we got the uh, transfiguration, which gave us a bit of a sneak preview of his glory. Well, here is a sneak preview of Pentecost, of the founding of the church. And you have here a sort of prototype of the church, if you like, a church in miniature uh, as it starts. We had discussions in life groups, didn't we, about, you know, what constitutes a church. Well, here is it really stripped back to essentials. Here we have believers gathered together around Christ. Believers gathered together around Christ. To meet Christ, he speaks to them in the power of the Spirit, which he breathes on them in our passage. What does Jesus proclaim to them? Well, he proclaims the gospel. That's what he's he's doing. When he says, peace be with you, well, what he's talking about is peace between God and men. That's not an unusual greeting to say, peace be with you. But in the mouth of the risen Christ, it takes on a whole new meaning. It's remarkable, isn't it, if you think about it, that Jesus, if this is such a normal greeting, Jesus doesn't use this phrase any time before the resurrection. And then here in this one passage, he uses it three times. It's there to show us something. It's, it's trying to get a point across. And its point is this, that Jesus actually is coming uh, to bring the gospel. He's coming to bring good news, to bring peace. Because think about it. If Jesus died on, well, Jesus did die on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he could have come back, couldn't he, in wrath and anger. So Jesus has just been crucified by mankind. Actually, when Jesus reappears, it could be quite scary. I mean, what is he coming back to do? But actually, he comes back, not with revenge, but with peace. Peace I give to you. It's the gospel. Jesus would have every reason to come back and destroy this world. But instead, he comes back and proclaims peace. So they don't meet a silent Christ. They meet him in his word. He speaks to them, even at his resurrection. And the church is here gathering around Christ to hear his word in the power of the spirit right from day one. The product of the resurrection, if you like, is the church. So what we have here is Jesus linking what we traditionally think of as Pentecost with his death and resurrection. I mean, have you ever thought about this? Why couldn't Jesus just start the church before his death and resurrection? Why do you have to wait until after his death to do it? Couldn't he have sent his spirit and empowered believers before that? Well, no. Because Jesus had to fulfil all that had been promised. He had to take us from the age of promise to the age of fulfilment. He had to take us from one age, the old, to the new. From mere taste of the Spirit to his fullness. So the way that Jesus did this was by his death, resurrection and ascension. He began a new meet, uh, a new, uh, a, a new resurrection age by his rising from the dead. So the fullness of the spirit belongs to that resurrection age that Jesus brought in. He couldn't be sent until that age had been brought about by Jesus. So what Jesus was doing is showing us the connection between those two things. To separate the sending of the spirit and the resurrection misses the flow of scripture, if you like. So Jesus does this here to show us that the resurrection is key to the sending of the spirit. To the point that there's no, if there's no resurrection... There's no sending of the Spirit. Now it finally happens after the ascension. As finally we are lifted spiritually with Christ. 
uh, just as Christ is lifted physically into God's presence. Our dwelling place with God became a present reality in Christ, not just a future promise anymore. So we are now uh, at Pentecost then, the church began, begins with earnest as we're gathered in Christ around the throne of God, filled with his spirit, seated with the Son. But it's Jesus' death and resurrection that makes it possible. So Jesus links the founding of the church with his own death and resurrection. And then John adds that sort of bamboozling line at the end, doesn't he? Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Only God can forgive sin, can't he? That's what we discover in the Gospels. Well, this is about declaring sins forgiven, not actually forgiving them. It's as though they're saying, if you trust in Christ and repent, then your sins are forgiven. If you reject Christ, then they're not. And that's really what's preached in the gospel, isn't it? What Jesus is doing here is telling them to preach the gospel boldly. Not to sort of go around it, but to explain to people just what's at stake. It's the mission side to the church to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's that other side of Pentecost. He sends them out to do this. The Spirit will do it, but it's Jesus' death and resurrection that begins it, because the resurrection creates the church. The second thing that the resurrection does is drive away doubt. Have a look at verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of his nails, of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Here we have the incident with the famous doubting Thomas. Uh, If this morning we have the people who are quick to believe and confused, well, here is the outright sceptical. Thomas wants proof. It's not enough that the other ten disciples all claim to have seen Jesus No, before he believes, he wants to see Jesus for himself. Perhaps you know people like that. Perhaps you are a person like that. Well, do you know what this passage shows us? There's a place for you in the kingdom too. Because it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't so much as rebuke Thomas as offer him what he asks for. He offers him his hands and his side. He gives him the evidence that he's asking for. Sometimes people give the impression, don't they, that God is hiding himself. You know, that he only shows himself to true believers. Well, it's not true. He presents his evidence clearly enough, doesn't he? Think about it. The world is a giant signpost to God. The fact of a creation implies a a creator, however he chose to make it. Our consciences inside us that everyone has are a massive signpost. The fact we have right and wrong. Again, whatever we think those right and wrong are... All of us have this moral idea. There is a moral dimension to the universe that by right shouldn't exist. And there's guilt that comes along with that. I mean, what's the evolutionary purpose of guilt? It paralyzes people. 
It's not good for survival. It often drives people to do horrific things to themselves. So creation is a sign, conscience is a sign, but the view in the wooden view here is Christ. And Christ has certainly not hidden himself. He presented himself to his disciples, but he also presented himself publicly to over 500 people, we're told in the New Testament letters. He didn't tell his disciples then to keep it to themselves, but to go and tell everyone and everything what had happened. So God is not being economical with the evidence. Now, there are some people, though, who take it a step further than Thomas. Uh, Thomas is saying here, unless I have evidence, I won't believe. And I think, you know, that's actually quite a reasonable position, a healthy scepticism that's okay for a Christian. But others say, even if I have the evidence, I still won't believe. A sort of anti-theism. So even with the evidence, they won't believe. So this is sort of defending Thomas a little bit. Imagine if instead of Thomas, you've got Richard Dawkins or Bertrand Russell in that upper room. What would they have said afterwards, after Jesus had appeared to them? How would they explain that actually Jesus had stood there and offered them his hands and signed? They'd probably tell you it was a hallucination or trick of the mind or hypnotism. Some people are so sceptical that if Jesus came and stood right before them and spoke to them like he did to Thomas, they still wouldn't believe. But not from not enough evidence, but through sort of hyper-scepticism, scepticism in the face of evidence. But Thomas here is not hyper-sceptic. He wants evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead. But Jesus then supplies that evidence. And Thomas then drops his scepticism, doesn't he? He says, my Lord and God. Now, it could be an expression of shock. I know uh, my mum always used to say things like, my giddy aunt. I thought that was a bit of a strange one for a sort of expression of shock. Um, or it could be a confession of the truth. In other words, here is my Lord and God. But either way, what he says is true, isn't it? And as John reports it, he wants us to understand that. Here is Thomas's Lord and God, Jesus Christ. There can be no doubt now, Jesus is Lord. And even a sceptic is convinced. There's something quite amazing, isn't there, when a sceptic's actually convinced of something. It lends credence to the truth, doesn't it? It's not just people who wanted to believe and were quick to believe, like John was this morning. When sceptics are convinced, it really shows you that something really is in it, doesn't it? I remember uh, a few years ago, Donald Trump uh, claiming that Obama hadn't been born in America. I don't know if you remember all this. They called it the Bertha controversy. Uh, but in the end, Obama produced his birth certificate and Donald Trump said, OK, I accept it. He was born in Hawaii. And it sort of it lends a bit of credence to the fact that that actually is true, doesn't it? When somebody who's sceptical is convinced. And it's happened in Christianity, hasn't it, down through the years? Think of the Apostle Paul, who was persecuting the church. Suddenly his life is turned around, and he's convinced now that Jesus isn't a fake. Actually, he's convinced that Jesus is Lord. Or think of C.S. Lewis. He called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He really didn't want to believe. But when he was confronted with the evidence, he believed. Or Frank Morrison, who wrote the, the famous book, Who Moved the Stone? He set out to write a disproof of the resurrection. That's what he thought was going to be his bestseller. But as he looked into the evidence, he found that it was true and wrote a book about how it was true. 
It makes you realise there is something in it, isn't there, when a sceptic is convinced. And Thomas is such a man. The resurrection finally convinced him that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that Jesus uh, really was Lord. But there are a couple of questions that uh, the account of Thomas leaves us with. The first one is, well, doesn't Jesus sort of fob us off with the same thing? Uh, in the sense that he he doesn't give us a personal uh, resurrection experience. I mean, Thomas is not prepared to believe the other apostles, and he gets his own sort of Jesus standing in front of him. Why don't we get the same thing? Why don't we have uh, Jesus appearing to us if we're sceptical? Well, actually, we're in a better position than Thomas was. Uh, it's alluded to, really, at the end, isn't it, uh, of that section, uh, verse 29. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a sort of blessedness to what comes after Thomas's position. How are we in a better position? Well, I think four ways, really. The first one is that we have scripture. Don't underestimate the power of the Bible. It's God's word, God speaking to us. We have the New Testament, which if powerfully and effectually witnesses to Jesus' resurrection all the way through. Thomas didn't have that. He didn't have the New Testament. We have the Spirit. The Spirit testifies to us. He works in us, causing us to believe. Whatever you think happened before with Jesus breathing, well, Thomas wasn't there. He doesn't believe the, the, the resurrection. But the Spirit is at work in people who hear the good news of Jesus, uh, of, death, of his death and resurrection testifying to them of the truth, convicting them of their sin, bringing them to life spiritually. And then the Spirit indwells us and brings us to Christ. Thomas didn't have that experience. The Spirit's not yet come in that that way. Thirdly, we actually have Thomas's personal resurrection experience. That's one thing that Thomas didn't have. We have the account of a sceptic believing. We can take Thomas's word for it, if you like. Uh, We know that Jesus even convinced sceptics that he'd come back uh, to life. Well, Thomas didn't have that. He only had people who seemed quite eager to believe. And then fourthly, we've got 2,000 years of testimony of those who have come to believe in Jesus' resurrection. We can look at millions of lives changed all over the globe, all through history. Millions of witnesses to the truth of the life-changing power of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas didn't have that, but we do. So convinced of these sorts of truths that Martin Luther uh, had a vision of Christ once, uh, the resurrected Jesus, and he told it to go away. This is what he wrote. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. Christ once appeared visible here on earth and showed his glory and according to the divine purpose of God, finished the work of redemption and deliverance of mankind. I do not desire that he should come once more in the same manner. Neither um, uh, would I that he should send an angel unto me. Nay, though an angel should come and appear before mine eyes from heaven, yet it would not add to my belief. For I have of my Saviour, Jesus Christ, bond and seal. I have his word, spirit and sacrament. Thereon I depend and desire no new revelations. And the more steadfastly to confirm me in this resolution, to hold solely by God's word and not to give credit to visions or revelations, I shall relate the following circumstance. On Good Friday last, I being in my chamber in fervent prayer, contemplating with myself self, how Christ my Saviour on the cross suffered and died for our sins, there suddenly appeared upon the wall a bright vision 
of our Saviour Christ, with the five wounds steadfastly looking upon me, as if, as if it had been Christ himself corporally. At first sight, I thought there had been some celestial revelation. But I reflected that it must needs be an illusion and juggling of the devil, for Christ appeared to us in his word and in a meaner and more humble form. Therefore I spoke to the vision thus, Avoid thee, confounded devil, I know no other Christ than he who was crucified, and who in his word is pictured and presented unto me, whereupon the image vanished, clearly showing me of whom it came. So actually, Martin Luther said, actually, we're in a better position than having a vision of Christ before us. We have Christ in his word, Christ wrapped in the gospel. So Jesus doesn't fob us off. He actually gives us more than Thomas had. It might not be on our terms, but he gives us more than we need to believe. So that's the first question it sort of leaves us. Jesus isn't fobbing us off. The second question that Thomas leaves us with is this, though. Does doubt go away when you become a believer? Is Thomas's experience just for non-believers? Well, I want to say yes and no. Yes, the experience that we're given here of Thomas is one from going to be from being an unbeliever to a believer. But I also want to say no. Doubt is a normal experience for a believer at points in their life. It's not a desirable experience, but it's something that most Christians go through at some point. So think about uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I've been enjoying a bit of John Bunyan recently. John Bunyan had Christian kept prisoner at Doubting Castle uh, by the giant despair. That's not Christian before he sets off on his pilgrimage. It's not that he had doubts before. This is doubts actually on his pilgrimage during his journey. In other words, he describes it as the experience of a Christian. In the end, Christian escapes when he finds a key, a key that's actually been in his top pocket all along, the promises of God. And he clings to those promises to escape the castle doubt. But doubts are a dungeon, though. They're things that are not desirable. We need to get out of them by trusting in God's word. We don't want to stay in the dungeon. I say that because there's a school of thought that's uh, prevalent in something called the emergent church, that doubts are sort of positive, that it's good to doubt. But I want to say, really, if we're sort of saying this, this, this is something to be desired, we're sort of emphasising that it should be the blind leading the blind. Doubts are not positive, but neither are they so bad that they exclude us from the kingdom. Uh, Jude tells us in Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. If doubting was such a bad thing, I don't think Jude would write uh, us to have mercy on people who are doubting. We can all have a touch of the Thomases from time to time. But what counts is that, like Thomas, we don't stay there. And the resurrection is a big help to that, isn't it? It's something that we can look back historically and say, did it happen? So much of the time we focus on our own feelings and how we feel. But the resurrection gives us something solid to depend on, something we can look back on. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, if he did, then he is Lord. And we can cling to that. So now we have the resurrection established. The last of the seven signs that John shows us in his gospel. And now to finish with, John lays down his cards on the table and addresses us, the reader. And we see that the resurrection brings new life. Have a look at verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
We've said all along, haven't we, that John is being selective with what he's telling us in his book. This is by no means the whole of what John could have told us about what Jesus did and the amazing things that he did while he was on earth. John could have written many books on Jesus, but he's written this one with a purpose. That we may join with John and Mary and Thomas and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you like, there's no hidden agenda in John. He has a very open agenda. He wants you to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that John is untrustworthy. He's trying to convince us because he's become convinced of this true at two. He wants us to know something that he knows to be true. But there's something more. There's something, uh, this is something that he knows about the truth. There's something that he knows about the truth that makes it more than just a matter of facts. Do you see there at the end of verse 31? Um, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, as John writes his book, as John writes his gospel, he doesn't just want us to have beliefs. He wants us to have life. And I think really as he talks about life, he's got two things in mind. The first is life rather than death. Jesus offers us eternal life, doesn't he? Death which has lost its sting. Life eternal. And when we believe in Christ, we begin eternal life. We can look forward to an eternity with God. We can avoid that second death that the Bible calls hell. How? Well, again, it's down to Jesus' resurrection, isn't it? Because we will be raised as he has been raised. Romans 6 verse 5 says this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. We're united to Christ by his spirit. And that means one day we will rise with him physically. We will conquer death just as he has conquered death because he has conquered death. So I think he's talking about life, not death. But I think also he's talking about life and not merely existence. You know, the idea that it's possible to exist without really living. Jesus doesn't promise us mere existence. He promises us life. Life to all who believe. Listen to how he talks about it in John's Gospel. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, life, though, is something abundant. Life is about knowing God through Jesus Christ. You see, the good news is not, uh, good news of the gospel, sorry, is not come and live forever. Though that is true, we will live forever. The good news of the gospel is come and know Jesus. The gospel gives us life. Because it gives us Jesus. He himself is the gift of the gospel. And if you don't know why that's good news, then you need to understand who Jesus is. That John has been telling you about all the way through his gospel. You see, believing in Jesus offers us life. Because as John says, he is life. Believing in Jesus is not some sort of hoop we get to to get through to something else completely unrelated. Believing in Jesus gives us life because life is found in Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And believing in him, we're raised to life spiritually. We're given spiritual life that we may enjoy life with him. That's the good news of the gospel, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that begins now 
and lasts on into eternity. That's the good news. And it's what the resurrection brings. A relationship that Thomas himself entered into, didn't he? No longer a doubting Thomas, but a believing Thomas. Maybe we should give him a new name. No, believing Thomas. No longer a sceptic, but a son. No longer a doubter, but a disciple. Well, let's pray that the resurrection will continue to do that work in our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the resurrection. Father, thank you that we have something to celebrate today. And Father, thank you for all that the resurrection brings us. And Father, we pray that it would help us with our doubts. Father, we pray that it would help us uh, as we seek to, to live life to the full in Christ. Father, we pray that it would help us in our church life as we realise how shaped we are by your son's death and resurrection. So Father, give us uh, life as you give us Christ. And Father, help us to live for you this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.